Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Let's start with a quote about regrets from today's guest. Some beliefs operate quietly like existential background music. Others become an anthem for living. And few credos blare more loudly than the doctrine that regret is foolish, that it wastes our time and sabotages our well-being. We examine the case against no regrets, why we should look at our regrets in a whole new way with Daniel Pink. We think that it's courageous to say, I have no regrets. It's not. What's courageous is staring your regrets in the eye, confronting them, and doing something about them. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Why on earth should we be backward-looking and not only admit that we have regrets, but go even further and focus on them. Doesn't that just drag us down? Well, in a way, it can lift us up. The science shows that regret is not really dangerous or unusual if we approach it the right way. It can be healthy and universal, so let's get into it. Daniel Pink is our guest today. He's the author of best-selling, provocative books about business, work, creativity, and behavior. His latest is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Daniel joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So before you make your case, let's talk about what we're up against. Everybody believes that it's bad to have regrets. There are how many songs and, and book titles are called No Regrets. Bob Dylan, Angelina Jolie, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they've all told us you shouldn't have regrets. But you beg to differ. Yeah, I'm not even sure I'm begging to differ. I'm sort of grabbing people by the lapel and saying, you've gotten it totally wrong. Um, this philosophy of no regrets is not a sustainable and effective blueprint for living. It is actually kind of complete nonsense. What we know from 50, 60 years of science is that everybody has regrets. The only people who don't have regrets are five-year-olds, people with neurodegenerative disorders, and sociopaths. The rest of us have regrets. And the reason we have regrets is that regrets are part of our cognitive machinery. They help us become better. They instruct us and they clarify it. And if we learn to deal with our regrets properly, they can be a powerful source for forward progress. In the research for your book, Did you come up with the reason as to why there's this avalanche of advice for no regrets? I don't know if I have a clear reason for that. I have a guess. No one ever taught us how to deal with negative emotions. Uh, We think that the only emotions that we should have are positive emotions. And, And what's pretty clear is that we should have a lot of positive emotions. But negative emotions are part of our 
brain. Negative emotions are part of what it means to be human. And if we treat negative emotions properly, they're useful to us. That's why they have persisted throughout evolution. Negative emotions, by their very nature, they feel bad. So we want to try to avoid them and bat them away. And the reason we do that is no one ever taught us a better way to deal with them. And there is a better way to deal with them. And sort of I'm on this mini crusade here to, as I said, to just sort of shake people by the lapels, for those of you wearing lapels out there, shake you by the lapels and say, you know, wake up. We've gotten this. We've gotten this wrong. And how often do we get it wrong? I mean, we often feel regret, right? It is the most common negative emotion we have. It is the second most common emotion that people express overall. And instead of batting away or wallowing in it, use it. It's a it's a gift that's being presented to you. You quote a team of scholars who say our cognitive machinery is pre-programmed for regret. But that programming doesn't kick in until people are seven or eight years old or something. And it's fairly complicated. Walk us through what your mind and your emotions have to do to create this experience of regret. Sure. Our ability to experience regret is actually very complicated. You got it exactly right, Jim. This is why little kids, they just their, their minds haven't developed the, the muscularity, the dexterity, the experience to, to deal with this. Because what we do with regret is this. We time travel, all right, which is something kind of amazing that we can do in our head. So we can go backward in time. All right. Imagine a situation that's already that, that's in the past. Then they negate what happened, saying, no, if, if, if I had studied in Bucharest, um, you know, so they negate what really happened. They tell a new story. Then zoop, they, they, they get back in their time machine, travel forward their time and say, then the present would be different. It's very, very cognitively complex. The fact that, as you say, the fact that it is part of our cognitive machinery should tell us something. It is there for a reason if we're open to hearing its message. Make the case for why regret matters. We all feel regrets, but why are they so important to us? So regrets are are painful. They're hard to take, but they're also hard to avoid. And if we treat them right, there are an array of advantages. This is the thing that's kind of amazing about it, that if we reckon with our regrets properly, there's a pile of evidence showing that it helps us become better negotiators. It helps us avoid certain kinds of cognitive biases. Uh, it helps us become... Uh, much better problem solvers. Even thinking about other people's regrets can help improve our performance and our problem solving skills. Thinking about our regrets actually deepens our sense of meaning. And what's more, and if that weren't enough, you know, there's some of the research that I've done shows that that understanding our regrets actually points us to what really matters in our life. So there's this, there are, there are an array of benefits. If you ignore regret, you are, in, in a sense, leaving money on the table. You are like not getting the maximum out of your uh, out of out of your performance and your happiness. And you might regret that. <laughs> so, for your book, you didn't just dive into the research of of psychologists and sociologists. You actually put together your own very ambitious research project called the American Regret Project, which sampled more than 4,000 people's memories and thoughts about their own regrets. Tell us how that worked and, and what you got out of that research. 
Well, one of the interesting things about the moment that we're in right now is that the the ability of individuals to do this kind of research that would have been prohibitive, both in terms of cost and complexity, like when I first started writing books, it's just amazing. And so working with a data analytics company, we put together a very, very good public opinion survey, the largest survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. Uh, to try to probe, you know, what people thought. Uh, we found that um, if you ask people about their experiences with regret and don't use the word regret, here's what you find. So we asked people this question. How often do you do you look back on your life and wish you had done something differently? Okay. So, you know, you can't stare down at your no regrets tattoo when I asked if I, if I were to ask a question about regret. And we found that a whopping 1% said they did that never. I think it was another 15 or 16% who said they do it ah, hardly ever. So what we had is we had 83% of Americans saying they do occasionally. The one really, I think, demographic difference in that quantitative research was, was differences in age. What we found is that when people are relatively young, you know, around in, in, in their, say, 20s especially, people tend to have equal numbers of action regrets. I regret something I did. And inaction regrets. I regret something I didn't do. But as people age, the inaction regrets take over. So an action regret would be something like, um, uh, we have a lot of regrets about people. I, I bullied kids in school. I cheated from my business partner. Um, I, I insulted my mother. Uh, and then an inaction regret would be something like, uh, if only I had started a business rather than stayed in this lackluster job. Uh, if only I had reached out to my friend before she died. So these fit in this grouping you call the the deep structure of regrets, these four main types of regrets. Walk us through that. What I wanted to do was figure out what people regret. And so I asked all these Americans to give me their regret, but then I asked them to categorize it. Is this a family regret? Is this a career regret? Is it an education regret? And I found to my frustration what other researchers had found for the last 20 years, which is that it's all over the place, um, that it's very that, that you, there isn't a kind of a dominant category there. I did another piece of research called the World Regret Survey, which was a piece of qualitative research where I gathered. Well, at this point, we're over 17,000, over 17,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. It's crazy. And what I found in reading through those regrets is that I was in many ways asking the wrong question. Um, that what was going on was, a, as you say exactly, Jim, a deeper structure of regret. Give us an example of that, how that affects the way people look back at their lives. Okay, let's go back to this idea, this, this thing. I just happened to be talking about it to people at, with somebody last night who regret studying abroad in college, who not studying abroad in college. So an inaction regret, I regret not studying abroad in college. That's an We put that as an education regret. Then I have all the a lot of regrets about people who say, oh, I wanted to start a business. I wanted to be entrepreneurial, but I stayed in this lackluster job and didn't have the guts to go out on my own. Career regret. Then we have a lot of people, I mean, a shocking number of people <laughs> all over the world who have regrets about someone in their life whom they really were interested in romantically. They wanted to ask that person out on a date. They were too chicken to, they never got around to it, and now they're regretting it and wondering what if. That's a romance regret. But to my mind, those are all the same regret. It's a regret that says, if only I'd taken the chance. It doesn't matter the domain of life. What matters is that you're at this juncture. 
you can play it safe or take the chance. And over and over again, people regret not taking the chance. And, and I even have people in this database of regrets who took the chance. It was a complete colossal failure. And they're actually less agonized by that than people who never got around to taking the chance. That's fascinating that people actually have more regrets about not taking a chance than jumping in and making a mess of things. What are more examples of inaction regrets? Foundation regrets, which are, if only I'd done the work. These are people who regret not taking care of their bodies, not saving money, not working hard in school. Uh, moral regrets, which are, if only I'd done the right thing. These are people who were at a juncture, could do the right thing, do the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing. They regret it. And then finally, connection regrets, which are, if only, I, if only I'd reached out. And these are about relationships, but way beyond romantic relationships. The, the whole 360 of relationships in our lives, which actually give them wholeness and meaning. Not only our romantic partners, but our kids and our parents and our siblings and our other relatives and our friends. So many regrets about friends and our colleagues, those kinds of things. A lot of people listen to How Do We Fix It overseas. Um, are there any differences between American regrets and the regrets that people have in other countries? What I did notice was remarkable, remarkable similarity across the world. I think age might give you, uh, give you, you might be able to guess age a little bit, but nationality, I think, would be pretty, I think we were pretty hard. The one thing you had with Americans, some Americans, is that you had people who f go to the survey, the World Regret Survey, say, I have no regrets, and then tell me a regret. One thing I liked in the book is you quote from this survey quite a bit. I think my favorite was a man who said, I wish I had planted more trees. Oh, you know, I don't I don't really have a favorite. I do really, really like that one. One might think that, you know, showing up in my office every day for a year and a half and seeing what new regrets came in uh, would be a would be a downer. But it was the exact opposite, actually, because you see regrets like that. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I should plant some trees. It was very aspirational. It was very uplifting. And what you have in these these regrets is these little mini tales about people's lives. And what's interesting about these regrets and another way that we've gotten it wrong is that when people tell you their regrets, they are telling you what they value. They're telling you what matters to them. My argument is that they are the photographic negative of the good life. If we understand what people regret the most, we understand what they value the most. So at some level, it's kind of delightful that you have this chorus of all these people saying, this is what we value. What do we value? We value stability because nobody likes being precarious. We value taking a chance and doing something interesting. We value doing the right thing and we value love. And that those are the components, I think, of a good life. You are a best-selling author. You've written a number of books on other topics. How did you personally become interested in regret? I, I realized that I had my own regrets. And, and I found that when I talked about them with people, which I did very sheepishly at first, to my amazement, people leaned in rather than recoiled. And that really surprised me. And I was actually, um, I actually started out, I was, I, was, I was contracted to write an entirely different book, something entirely different. I was working on it. And then when I started thinking about regret, 
And it was like, I mean, a catalyst was my one of my daughter's college graduations, which is a, sort of that marker in time where you're just wondering how time moves so fast. And I realized that I was at a stage in my life where I had I had some mileage behind me. There's no way I would have written this book in my 30s. Uh, I think that in my 50s, it felt kind of inevitable because I was reckoning with these kinds of things myself and I wanted to make sense of them. Jim and I are going to share our own personal oh, regrets I'll, towards I'll the end it. of the show. Oh, <laughs> and, all right. Let, I, gotta, I guess I, guess I got to keep listening. We're gonna, <laughs> I think, we, I think uh, we're going to need a whole different episode to fit all that in, Richard. <laughs> You're right. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. More from Daniel Pink coming up. Let's talk about what we do with all these regrets. You know, in the case of the guy who wishes he'd planted more trees, you can take that as a piece of life advice. Hey, let's go plant some trees. What are the ways that we should think more positively or harness our regrets more effectively? We have to approach them differently. So so get rid of this idea that we should ignore regrets, but also get rid of the idea that we should wallow in them. All right. So the guy who, who said, I regret not planting enough trees, I think it's very obvious what he should do. Go out and plant some trees. You know, listen to that. Don't say, ah, oh, it doesn't really matter. And don't say, oh, I'm the worst person in the world because I'm contributing to global warming by not planting trees. No. So the first thing is to look inward. You know, a lot of times we are too critical of ourselves. Um, and And so... The first step to my mind is, is actually something called self-compassion, where you treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. The way we talk to ourselves for missteps is, is cruel in many cases. Uh, we would never talk to that way to somebody else. And so treat yourself with kindness, recognize that your missteps are part of the larger human condition, uh, and recognize that any stupid thing that you did doesn't fully define you because you have this whole entire life. And so sort of look inward. The next step is to express outward. We should be talking about our regrets. We should be sharing our regrets at the very, very least. We should be privately writing about our regrets. Disclosing our regrets unburdens them. What's more is that when we convert this blobby negativity to words, it's less menacing. We think when we disclose our vulnerabilities and our mistakes to other people, they will think less of us. There is 30 years of research saying they think more of us for doing that. So disclosure. And then finally is extract a lesson from it. And the way you extract a lesson is you zoom out. You you don't, you know, you, you look at your regret like an oceanographer rather than a scuba diver. And so look inward and forgive yourself, express outward and disclose to make sense of it, and then um, move forward by zooming out and extracting a lesson from it for next time. Let's walk through those three steps with a little more detail. I love this concept of, of self-compassion. Are you suggesting that people should attempt to give advice to themselves the way they would give advice to others in kind of a caring and compassionate way? I am not suggesting that. At some level, Richard, I am pleading for that okay i'll tell you something i've been doing wrong for 50 years that i that this that, that this corrected okay so so i like to exercise i like to run i like to play sports and so forth and and in any of those kinds of things there's always self-talk you're always talking to yourself and so if you look at me running you know i've run a bunch of half marathons and things like that and i'm running along and if you were to inside my head to hear dan talking to dan 
you would think that Dan the talker is the rudest, most horrible human being there ever was because the way that he talked to Dan the runner was cruel. You idiot, what the hell's wrong, you know? And this seems nominally useful, self-criticism. There's very little evidence that it's effective. What's effective is actually treating yourself with kindness. So that's it. So treat yourself emotionally the way that you would treat a friend. We are better, always better at solving other people's problems rather than our own problems because we're too enmeshed in the details of our own problems. So you're not advocating guilt. You're, you're saying we should confront our regrets. It's different. Precisely. We think that it's courageous to say I have no regrets. It's not. What's courageous is staring your regrets in the eye, confronting them, and doing something about them. Not blithely batting them away and not um, luxuriating in them, but thinking about them, thinking about them. And no one has ever taught us how to deal with negative emotions. We think that when we have negative emotions, this is very true for teenagers, that when we have negative emotions, there's something wrong with us because everybody else out there is so positive. There must be something wrong with me. And, and so you end up initially trying to bat it away or you end up becoming debilitated by it. What I want to suggest is that negative feelings are signals. They're teachers. They're instructors. And when we look at the whole panoply of negative emotions, the most common and the most transformative is regret. Regret is an instructive emotion and it's a clarifying emotion if we treat it right. Part of that cognitive process is something you call reframing. Can we dig a little bit more into how that works? Sure. At, at some level, self-compassion is a form of reframing. We look at ourselves during our mistakes and we see somebody who is in, in many ways unworthy. We see somebody who we think is terrible. What I want to suggest is that you, you change the, the frame that you should look at yourself with is the same frame that you should look you would look at any other people, which is basically that we're all flawed human beings trying to do the best that we can. And if you look at yourself that way, it is actually liberating. Are most of us fabulists? Do we tell hopelessly inaccurate stories about ourselves? Many times we do. And, and many times that it's actually functional. I mean, fabulism is part of our ability to, to, to deal, with, deal with regret. The confusion that we sometimes have is that we're not sure whether we're the character in the story or whether the author. And the answer is we're both. So, so as an author, we can control the plot somewhat. Um, as a character, we're hostage to events, but not fully. And so what we're trying to figure out here in the narrative of our lives is respond as well as a character could to external events and then actually be the best author you can possibly be. Regret has this clarifying force that when we deal with it, when we confront it, it begins to clarify these essential questions of our, about our lives. What's important? What is the proper mix of opportunity and obligation? What can we control and what can we not control? And this is why once we reckon with this emotion, it brings, it sheds light, it clarifies our complex world. And I think that's even more important now when we're ever so slowly clawing our way out of this pandemic after two full years. One thing that really struck me is this tendency you alluded to earlier for us to have a different mix of regrets as we get older. And, the, and when people are older, their regrets are often about the, the things that they wish they'd done a better job of. 
if you could put together a list for someone who's not yet old, you know, say, oh, here's my checklist for someone at the age of 27 <laughs> to harness the wisdom of, of older people, what would be on it? I've got kids that age. Here's what you're going to regret. It seems pretty clear. I mean, I, I think on this, I can forecast it with some degree of, of accuracy. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, here's what you're going to regret. You're going to regret not building a solid foundation of, for your life. You're going to regret not saving a little bit of money. You're going to regret not taking care of your health. Two, you are going to regret the chances you didn't take. You are going to regret not being bold. You are very rarely going to regret taking that chance. Three, you are going to regret doing the wrong thing. 98% of us want to do the right thing. And you are going to regret not building close connections with people. The other stuff, it's not going to matter all that much. I was too dumb when I was 20 to listen to that. But I, I wish someone at age when I was age 20 had told me that. Final question, from me anyway, Daniel Pink. As a result of working on this project, do you feel better about yourself than you did before? So I don't know whether I'm a, a better person, but but it has it has changed my behavior. I'll give you the I'll give you the example where it changes my behavior. Uh, connection regrets. Anytime now I'm at a juncture where I say, should I reach out to this person or should I not reach out to this person? I've answered the question. Being at that juncture answers the question. When in doubt, reach out. Always reach out. We've gotten that so wrong. We think that when we drift apart from somebody or the relationship comes undone, usually in these very undramatic ways, we worry that reaching out is going to be awkward and that the other side's not going to care. And what the evidence tells us over and over again, it's not that awkward, not nearly as awkward as we think. And the other side almost always cares. And so when in doubt, reach out. Thank you, Daniel Pink. Those are good words to end on. Thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed the conversation. There's, a, there's an aspect of this that is pedaling into the wind. You know, if I were to book saying, forget about all your regrets, never think about regrets again, uh, you know, there would be a little bit of a wind at my back. It'd be a false wind. But so I appreciate you recognizing that this is pedaling into the wind. But I think, it, but I think it's worth it. I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely nuts. The more I spend time on this, the more I realize just how incredibly nuts it is that people believe this no regrets philosophy and that and just it's amazing, astonishing to me how ill-equipped almost all of us are, including myself until recently, to deal with negative emotions. And if we help people process their negative emotions, everybody's going to be better off. Well, you know, how do we fix it was more or less invented so we could interview people who pedal into the wind. That's what we're all about. Yeah. All right. There you go. Pedaling into the wind with Jim and Richard. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Thank Take you care. Guys. Daniel Pink. Next, our recommendation. My recommendation is a podcast called Blocked and Reported by journalists Katie Herzog and Jesse Single, both of whom I've been reading for a long time. Their home base is on Substack. They've got a newsletter and all those other things that Substack people do. And they have an absolute kind of laser focus on some of the most tricky, difficult, nuanced topics of the day, especially things that grow up in that kind of Twitter outrage universe. So it can be a little much for some people who aren't 
immersed in this these kinds of questions. But for example, they've done a number of shows about the whole debate as to how we should approach transgender issues. And they look at it from a very heterodox point of view. In other words, they're both essentially liberal left-leaning people, but who are also very skeptical of some of the liberal left-leaning orthodoxies, especially when they threaten free speech or open discussion of difficult ideas. Blocked and Reported is Jim's recommendation, a podcast. Coming up, our conversation about our own regrets. Regrets? I've had a few. <laughs> How about you, Richard? I, I, I have, but I, I don't think I have as many regrets as, as most people. I feel remarkably lucky in my life. I feel, you know, in the, in the words of, of, of a God-fearing person, I feel blessed. I, I do. Uh, but I think there are two main regrets in my life. One, and this relates to you a little bit, Jim, is listening. I am not a good listener, and I have not listened as well as I should have done to people who I love the most. And my biggest regret is actually not listening to and really understanding my father. That one, that one's, that one's pretty strong. Um, and then my son too. I I don't listen to him as well as I should. I I listen to people who I have easy chemistry with. I think. But I don't listen nearly as well as I should to people who I feel awkward with. Um, and so that's serious. And then today, actually, this morning, I just started doing PT for a little back pain, a little sciatica. And that's kind of a mild regret that I didn't do this 20 years ago because I think it's going to be really good and I think it's going to reduce some of the pain I feel. You know, I am often try to remember that in the scope of human history, <laughs> there are virtually no people who've ever had lives more, you know, full of health and good fortune than mine. I, you know, to be an American living in this time compared to even, you know, 60 years ago is, is, is such a blessing. And I do, th I think it's really important to remember that we did a little hike in an old, uh, cemetery in Sleepy Hollow, New York, uh, where Washington Irving is buried and some um, Rockefellers and other famous people. And you, every time you go to an old cemetery, you see this, how many gravestones for children? And you see that no matter whether it was somebody was rich or poor, they couldn't do anything about the fact that if they had six kids, perhaps two or three of them might not survive to adulthood. You just look at that alone and realize how fortunate we are to be alive today. But but you're a little bit slow answering this question. Okay, so uh, my uh, so, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they're most they mostly fall into um, connection regrets. You know, friends that I've fallen out of touch with. Uh, that's something that that I think about a lot. And in some cases. Um, Boldness regrets. You know, I'm a, I'm a musician, and I've I've toured in in a band, but I never really mastered the guitar. I played it for a while, and then I kind of put it aside. And 
I regret that because just sitting around with the guitar and singing songs is is such an important part of my life. So I'm I'm the harmonica player. I do a couple of other things, but you know, it'd be nice to have the guitar too. So that would be a a regret. I have to say, in the scheme of life, it's not a huge one, but it's something I think about a lot. So I think the most powerful thing that Daniel may have said is about self-compassion. You know, be kinder to yourself. And I should be kinder to you, Jim. (laughs) Yeah, you're so hard (laughs) on me, Richard. (laughs) It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Day. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. How Do We Fix It? It's a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits in the bridging community. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST recommends. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.